The scripture reading today is taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 14, verses 13 through 25. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will not say, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if you prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. And the secrets of his hearts are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much, Irene, for reading God's word. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the elders here at Christ City, and it's my joy to be able to bring you uh, the word of God this morning. Before we dive into the text, I need your I need God's help and so do you so let's pray Father God we do need your help I need your help I pray that as I minister this text to your people this morning to our church that you would give me exactly the words that you would want me to say that you would help me to express these words in a manner that pleases you that honors you and that communicates your gospel truth father you truly are among us and we pray that those that are gathered here this morning would see that father i pray also that you would open our hearts that the truth of these this text these words might land on our hearts for those that need to be convicted, that you would, you would convict their hearts, that they might turn from their sin and trust in you. For those that need to be comforted and encouraged, that you would do that. Father, that you would be glorified, that your spirit would be at work. For these things, and so much more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been reported that in 1963, a sign hung 
outside the shuttered doors of the University Christian Church in New York. And the sign read something like this. Gone out of business. Didn't know what our business was. These few words sum up the great peril of forgetting why we gather as a church. Put simply, we gather to make much of God. We gather to make much of God. And we do so in worship, in the expression of the uncommon love that we have in Christ toward one another. But there's one more important aspect. When the church is functioning as it ought, when it is going about its business, so to speak, People outside the church are drawn in. They are brought to an overwhelming sense of conviction by the Holy Spirit. And they declare that God is really among you. The church functions as it ought when each part of the body is working in its proper place, using her gifts appropriately with the right motive holding fast to the head, Jesus Christ, and building each other up, building up the church, including drawing in the outsider. In these few verses that we just read, that Irene just read for us, Paul addresses some specific dysfunctions in the Corinthian church, and he gives corrective instruction. Instead of promoting disorder, a lack of purpose, and a childish reputation for being out of their minds, Paul was exhorting this church to be mature, to be loving, to use their gifts in proper order and in proper complement to one another, so as to be a means even to the outsider, so that he might fall under conviction see the good news of Jesus Christ, and declare God is really among you. So, in light of that, here is my outline this morning. Just two points. First, we'll look at what does it mean to behave wrongly or childishly. When we behave wrongly as a church, outsiders conclude that we are out of our minds and God is not among you. And secondly, we'll look at, well, how, do, how then do we be- behave maturely in Christ? How then do we behave maturely in Christ? When we behave maturely in Christ as a body, outsiders fall on their faces and confess, surely God is among you. Two points, behaving wrongly or childishly, and second, behaving maturely. My aim this morning is to encourage us is to encourage you to grow increasingly into maturity, reflecting Jesus Christ in the use of our gifts so as to be an effective, spirit-empowered means for the outsider to declare God is really among you. You ready? We're going to dive in. First, we'll look at behaving wrongly as a body. Well, I guess the question is, well, how were the Corinthians behaving wrongly as a body? Well, the Corinthians seem to be all about the sensational, to the detriment of the rational. Just like their preoccupation with wisdom of the day in the earlier chapters, in contrast to the wisdom of God, 
They were abuzz about the sensational manifestations of the Spirit, namely tongues. Now, while tongues was a good gift that the Spirit gave to the church, the Corinthians had a preoccupation with its use. They were boastful. They seemed to bully others with it. And on the whole, they were hypocritical. This was childish. You might remember the greater context of the letter to the Corinthians. And especially with this greater context of what was going, going on, this hypocrisy and the lack of love amounted to evil. Do you remember the incest back in chapter 5? It was so evil that even the pagans detested it. As one preacher put it, incest in the afternoon covered up with tongues in the evening. You see, they had placed this gift disproportionately above prophecy. They had bought into their contemporary Jewish philosophy, which suggested that divine inspiration was God possessing his prophets and completely overwhelming their rational faculties during a period of inspiration. And thus they were uttering this unintelligible speech without loving consideration of each other, which failed to serve the purpose of building up the church. And so in verse 13, Paul provides a concrete solution. Those who speak in a tongue should also pray that they might interpret. Verse 14 goes on to explain, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, it is possible for those who speak only in tongues to not know what they are saying. Their spirits are moved to the core. But the content of what the Holy Spirit has helped them to utter has not yet reached their cognitive capacities. And so Paul suggests that he or she ought to ask for interpretation so that they might know what they are praying. Verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Now notice that Paul is not discounting the gift of tongues. Let me be very clear. Paul is not discounting the gift of tongues. Rather, he is emphasizing the complementary nature of the body the unity of the body, worked out both individually, personally, and corporately. When applied individually, when applied personally, this means that we are to use all of our personal faculties in our relationship with God. We are to engage in spiritual activity, namely prayer and worship, not just with one part of our body, <laughs> but with our whole body. And this applies both to those who have the gift of tongues and those who don't. You know, perhaps you're a person here this morning who does not have the gift of tongues, like me. And you're wondering whether this passage even applies. Like, should I even be paying attention this morning? 
And the answer is yes. Because the general principle here is that in whatever capacity God has gifted you, we are to use those gifts engaging our whole body, our whole personhood. Psalm 103 verse 1 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. We are made body and soul. We are made as integrated beings. And when we are praying and worshiping, we should not limit ourselves to only one part of our being. We are to engage the innermost parts. We are to engage our mind. We are to engage our affections, our emotions, our physical parts, and our will. Some of you here this morning need to engage your emotions more. Need to engage your inner parts, your inner parts, uh, innermost parts more. Others of you need to engage your mind more. Still others need to engage your will. Of course, Paul's application for the person who has the gift of tongues is clear. This means that while the Spirit may place upon our innermost beings an utterance which bypasses the mind, we should likewise pray that we might interpret the tongue and know what we are praying. One sister in our midst who has the gift of tongues recently recounted to me about how she had been moved to pray in tongues for those who were being baptized a few months ago. And yet she did not pray audibly in public until she received the interpretation of what she was uttering in her spirit. For those who do not have the gift of tongues, we can also apply. Don't just engage in worship for the sake of the emotional high for the sensational high and miss the rich theology of the words written in the hymns and songs. At the same time, let us not pray and worship as if this was just some sort of academic exercise or if, as if we have shown up to a funeral service. Engage in worship with your whole body. It's okay to raise your hands in worship. I know we're quite conservative. It is okay to clap your hands with joy, to lament with tears, to sing loud. It's okay to sing exuberantly, to cry out exuberantly with praise. Because when we do so, we not only engage what we're, uh, we, are, we not only engage with our minds, we engage with our emotions and with our whole body. We engage what we are designed for. We reflect the very nature of God himself. And so one way that we can behave wrongly, behave childishly, is simply to personally misuse the gifts. But the image of the body does not merely pertain to our own person and personhood. To play on words just a little bit. If the first principle is that we are to engage our whole being, we likewise must engage the whole body of Christ with consideration of the corporate whole of the church of Jesus Christ. We must seek to build up others in love 
in all that we do. Paul gives uh, the example of one who is uninitiated in verses 16 and 17. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, he says, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? Verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. The outsider in these verses most likely referred not just to unbelievers, but to the uninitiated. This could include anyone who was simply seeking, or it could refer to a Christian who could not understand the tongue that was being spoken. Now, Paul is instructing the Corinthians that intelligibility of speech was necessary. Intelligibility of speech was necessary. Frankly, this is just communication 101. Paul is putting priority on the intelligibility of speech because it is the way another can hear and agree with what you are saying. Just like when we say things one to another, we must also consider how that message is to be heard. We likewise are to consider that there are two hearers when we pray and when we sing. We have two people that we are communicating to. We are communicating to God and also to one another. And so we say amen when someone prays, not just because it is what we say at the end of prayers, kind of like tradition, but because the word itself means I agree. Thereby, we make the other person's prayer our own. And we are built up. We say amen when truth is proclaimed. Not just because we're trying to uh, replicate some practice in the fundamentalist 50s, but because when truth is heard, we affirm, we agree, and we participate in that truth. But for that to happen, we all need to comprehend together. We need to understand the message that is being spoken. And it is by this means that the body of Christ is built up. Amen? And so Paul is reminding the Corinthians that gifts are not merely to be used for our own personal edification, but for the benefit of all of God's people. And so we behave wrongly as a body, as a church, when we use our gifts merely for personal edification and without consideration of the body of Christ. And so it's right to ask, does our communication, do our means of communication here at Christ City make it easier or harder for people to be drawn in as one worshiping people? Do our practices reflect the goal of building each other up in communal participation of the worship of God? Do we use our gifts in such a way that it builds up the body? And moreover, do we encourage each part of the body of Christ to function, to complement one another so that the outsider might also say, Amen. I recently heard the testimony of one brother who goes to South Van uh, about when he first came to church. He mentioned that as an outsider, as yet an unbeliever, 
he was incredibly uncomfortable with the singing. In fact, he thought in his mind that these people are completely delusional. And yet, when the singing was accompanied by the clear preaching of God's word, it engaged this brother's mind, and he recounted how he was shaken to the core, to his innermost being, and surrendered to Christ. Now notice the complementary nature of how the Spirit worked both in his personal faculties, cognition, affection, will, as well as the corporate faculties, so to speak, both in the singing and the preaching. And so it's worth reiterating here that Paul is not disparaging those who speak in tongues. He does not suggest, for example, that those who have the gift of tongues simply cease using it and pray for prophecy instead, which he considers superior. No! Rather, he encourages those who have the gift of tongues to pray for interpretation. In fact, Paul says in verse 18 that he speaks tongues more than all of the Corinthians, and so it's clear that it's not only a desirable thing and a good thing for the church, Paul himself used his gift of tongues regularly, probably as a matter of personal devotional practice and perhaps in private intercession for others. Knowing now several who do have this gift, my own sister included, tongues can be very much edifying, both for the person who has the gift and for those whom uh, they minister to. Coupled often with intercession, they report being moved by the Spirit to pray in tongues for others even before they know the circumstances for which they are praying. And when interpreted, this can be incredibly powerful. For just like any other means of grace, the hearer of this interpreted prayer senses the working of the Holy Spirit and can offer their wholehearted amen. And yet, Paul makes clear, even to the point of using hyperbole, 5 verses 10,000, that the use of uninterpreted tongues in public worship is to be exceedingly rare simply because it cannot be understood and thus cannot be edifying. And so out of love, for others. Out of love for others, Paul willingly refrained from using tongues publicly, speaking instead five intelligible words that the church may be built up. And so I think it's worth pausing here just for a second and thinking about some application. In what ways, Christ City, do we behave wrongly, childishly, dysfunctionally, both individually and corporately? In what ways, perhaps, are you trying to impress people with what you think are your gifts? Sometimes, unpretentious ordinariness, ordinariness is actually more effective than anything else. Just the gospel through ordinary, loving, messy hospitality, for instance, 
of the gospel through ordinary, loving, messy speaking, even when I mispronounce words. Similarly, in what ways might you revise your gift, revision your gifts, desiring complementarity so as to build up the whole body? How might you demonstrate love? So that's the first point, behaving childishly or wrongly. Let's look then at our second point, behaving maturely. You see, Paul exhorts the Corinthians instead to be mature in their thinking. Verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And so, how do we determine whether our thinking is mature? Well, Paul tells us that we can tell by observing the effect on outsiders. Paul tells us that we can tell by, by looking at the effect on outsiders. The Corinthians thought that for outsiders to see something extraordinary was the way that they would come to believe. Like a child that was fascinated by the amusing or the flashy loud toy, the Corinthians sought to babble in unintelligible tongues during the public gathering in order to impress, perhaps even to boast, thinking that the so-called unbelievable would be the sign for unbelievers to be amazed and then suddenly believe. And Paul, knowing this, says, okay, if you want to take this line of argument, let's take it to its logical conclusion. It's a sign, all right, but it isn't the sign that you think it is. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12 in verse 21. Verse 21 says this, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, this quote, which Paul has done a little bit of tweaking, is referencing a time when the people of Israel failed to heed the prophet. People of Israel failed to heed the prophet. And so, as a result, they were delivered over to a people of strange tongues, namely the Assyrian invaders, so that by the lips of foreigners, namely the Assyrian invaders, they would be judged. The strange tongues, the strange language, were to be a sign of God's judgment upon his people. Now Paul relates that back to the situation here at Corinth. Verse 23, If therefore the whole church comes together, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? And so Paul is saying in effect that tongues are indeed a sign for the unbeliever, but not in the way that the Corinthians think. You see, instead of it being a sign of God's power, it would be a sign of God's judgment. The effect will be that they hear these unintelligible tongues, think that the people in the church are completely out of their minds, 
never to hear the good news of the gospel, and thus remain condemned in their sin. Hence, judgment. Now this ought to prick our consciences. Why? For there are eternal consequences to our actions. Not just the actions themselves, but the appropriateness and the motivations behind those actions. Have you considered how your actions and the motivations behind your actions might inadvertently serve as a sign of judgment toward those on the outside by spurring on their unbelief? I've once heard it said like this, how many of you are Christians today because of another Christian? Put up your hand. <laughs> How many unbelievers do you know who are not Christians today because of another Christian? Or because of a church? Returning to Paul's thought, verse 22. Thus, Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So, if tongues, when inappropriately used, can serve in a negative way, we would think that he would then say that prophecy is therefore a sign for unbelievers. But no, instead he says that it is a sign for believers. Are you confused yet? Well, join the club. See, if you look at any commentary, there's plenty of confusion too. It's a big jungle. But remember, maturity in this case is measured by the observed effect on the outsider. Maturity in this case is measured by the observed effect on the outsider. Verses 24 through 25 explain. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God. He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Interesting, isn't it? Now, it would be really good uh, just once again, just to clarify what prophecy means. I know we've been saying this a lot, but uh, I'm just going to read again the Thistleton quote very quickly. Prophecy as a gift of the Holy Spirit combines pastoral insight into the needs of persons, communities, and situations with the ability to address these with a God-given utterance or longer discourse. Leading to challenge or comfort, judgment or consolation, but ultimately building up the addressees. In other words, it is pastorally applied gospel truth. Prophecy is pastorally applied gospel truth and gospel promise in the context of a situation to point people to Christ and to help others. In this sense, I am prophesying to you right now because I am, at least I'm attempting to, take God's gospel truth and promise and seeking to apply it here in our context in the 21st century Kitsilano to our church here at Christ City here in this theater. 
Similarly, for those who are in the biblical counseling ministry, who do biblical counseling, are also prophesying. They seek to enter into a person's situation. They seek to understand them, appropriately minister the word of God to them in their suffering and in their sin. And frankly, it's amazing when that happens. When the word of God is aptly applied in the context of a situation, and the Holy Spirit is present, and the person is convicted to their core, and they fall on their face, they realize that Jesus truly is who he says he is. He really is the way, the truth, and the life. This kind of thing isn't natural, guys. It is miraculous. Just the other day, Karen and I were with the counselee, and we were led to a passage as they talked about this is this particular situation in their life. And this happened. This happened. They were convicted to their core. There were tears flowing. There was repentance happening. But it, is, it doesn't just happen in formal contexts, like preaching and like one-on-one counseling and one-on-one meetings. You see, when we brothers and sisters walk alongside another in love, when we bring them to God's word, as we seek to love them, and they are convicted or comforted, we too are prophesying. Let me just encourage those of you who are doing this. I hear stories during the week of people doing this, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful. But in an even more general sense, this happens when God's Spirit is present in our conversations, in our visiting, in our worship, when outsiders hear and see this gospel lived out through our gifts, through our spiritual gifts in an understandable way, they proclaim, surely God is among you. Quite frankly, I'm really glad that we are the type of church that promotes the plurality of elders and the priesthood of all believers. This means that we are not just the type of church that relegates the ministering of God's word to the professional paid staff. Because I think that this is much closer to what Paul has in mind. You see, Paul was envisioning a situation where an outsider might walk into a gathering of believers where this is happening, for example, where an elder might be preaching, let's say, from James 3, 13 through 17 on jealousy and bitterness. And he might think to himself, my gosh, how did he know? How did he know that I was actually harboring bitterness and jealousy against my spouse this past week? And of course, given our friendly, very intentional culture here at Kits, this person then gets three invitations to visit in people's homes, one invitation to coffee, and two invites to CGs. One on, the one on Monday and the one on, on Wednesday. And of course, the Tuesday team of intercessors has already begun praying for him. And moved by the Spirit, he decides, this outsider decides to attend one of these CGs. And to his astonishment, the same passage is discussed again. And those who are believers are challenged and encouraged to pursue from James wisdom from above 
And this particular fellow, this particular outsider, is convicted because he perceives that the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And he declares, surely God is really among you. By the way, this has happened more than once at Kitts. So it's not a hypothetical situation. It's an indication of the proper functioning of a church. Were we not at all, uh, at one point, all outsiders? And we heard the word of God. And we were convicted through the gifts and ministry of others. You see, the, the conviction of sins, the conviction of sins is an active demonstration of the Holy Spirit at work. It's an active demonstration of His grace at work. Yes, it begins with the Word of God. Hebrews 4, 12-13 reminds us, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him, to whom we must give an account. So yes, it does begin with the Word of God, but it doesn't end there. Yes, it happens by His Word, but through the means of us using our spiritual gifts, particularly that of prophecy. John 14.8 reminds us, And when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And the beauty is that it indeed is an extraordinary thing that people are convicted of their sin, that they come to believe in the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And yet to Christians in a functioning church, in a functioning body of Christ, it should seem like the most natural thing. And that should not really surprise us. For indeed, if we are the body of Christ, should we not act as Christ did on the earth? It also means, by the way, that church really is a gathering, not a service. You know, you may notice that here at Christ City, we make a big deal of that, that we emphasize the word gathering rather than service. It's the gathering of all the parts of the body of Christ, where each member is empowered by the Holy Spirit using their gifts, and they proclaim, they communicate the goodness of God in his or her life. They communicate that clearly in ways that we affirm, we repeat to one another, we build each other up. Church gathering is a very interpersonal affair. It depends on each one fulfilling our part to the others. It also means that our gatherings are evangelistic in nature. The gospel is proclaimed. It's lived. So much so that believers are encouraged and challenged and unbelievers fall under conviction. When we gather well, the result is that Everyone declares, God is really 
among you. So the rightful question to ask is how well are we doing at this or how poorly are we doing at this? Are we functioning Christ City in a mature way, reflecting the body of Christ in such a way that outsiders fall on their faces and declare, surely God is really among you. And if not, how might our childish ways of thinking be getting in the way of the work of the Holy Spirit? Perhaps you're too fascinated with the noisy gongs. Love must prevail. And that love results in conviction of sin, that the good news of Jesus Christ might be exalted. Much needs to be made of God. Well, it's time for me to conclude my sermon. And so, having expounded on what Paul has said, and hopefully it's landed on your hearts, this is my prayer for you, Christ City. I pray that we would hold fast to the head, Jesus Christ, making much of him. May we not be the church that sometime in the future be tweeting, gone out of business, didn't know what our business was. And I pray likewise that our message will never be cryptic, built upon some false hope. Going out of business in some other way. For our business is eternal. And its means are supernatural. But in the providence of God, it happens right here, right now, in the physical presence of God's church, through the love-motivated, spirit-empowered, whole-body-expressed gifts of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it is so beautiful to see your church at work. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gifts that you have given us through your Holy Spirit. May we use them rightly and maturely, holding fast to Jesus Christ in love, in appropriate proportion, that your church may be built up and that others might be drawn in, fall on their faces, worship you, become believers, and confess, surely God is here.